kids, ages three and four, and kindergartners, you can make your way to the back. Andy and Rachel are back there. They'll take you to your, to your classroom this morning. For the rest of you in here, take your Bible and turn to First uh, Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, it's towards the back of your Bible. Um, if you make it to all the way to the book of Hebrews in your Bible, you've gone a bit too far. So turn a few pages back to the left and you'll find the book of First Thessalonians. First uh, Thessalonians, we're going to be looking at verses eight or nine and ten, excuse me, verses nine and ten in First Thessalonians chapter one. But as we've done in the previous few weeks, we're going to read through all of chapter one together so that we have a, a pretty good idea of what Paul is saying here in this first chapter. Before we get started by reading that text, I want to commend to you again, uh, last week I said this, but I want to commend to you again the Bible reading plan. Uh, there are many copies still back there on the uh, on the table where the Bibles are, where you picked up your worship folder, that sort of thing. This is a, a Bible reading plan. It's going gonna, it's gonna to require or get you through the entire Bible in in the academic calendar. So you're going to start beginning tomorrow on Labor Day, and then sometime right around the end of May, you'll wrap up. I could just probably look at it. And May 25th will be the last day of 2024, will be the last day that you're reading. It's a six-day reading plan, which means that you're reading the Bible six of seven days a week, and the day off is, uh, is Sunday because uh, you're going to be here worshiping um, and ingesting the word here together as a congregational congregation in congregational worship. So a six-day plan, Monday through Saturday. It is aggressive because getting through the Bible in about nine months is is uh, is aggressive. And but but here um, you're going to find that there are catch up days applied. There are a handful of times where where if you are running behind, you can jump in. But the goal of the plan is for you to be in the Word every day, not just not just when you feel like it or when it's convenient for you, but that you're there's something here holding you to being in the Word every single day. And if you miss a day, uh, the plan states clearly, don't go back and read yesterday's, go to today's and read today. The most important thing is that you're in the Word today. Don't What we do when we come to Bible reading plans oftentimes is we think, I missed a day or I missed a, a, a week or a month even. And then we think, well, I, I, there's no catching up now, so I need to stay. I need to, then, then you feel overwhelmed and you don't continue. This plan is just today. Read today. And then what we want to do as a church together is you'll get an email this week with a handful of details about this, but um, the, uh, we want together to be getting together regularly so that we can be checking in with one another on the Bible reading plan. One of the best ways to, to continue uh, in uh, consistency in a Bible reading plan is to have men and women um, and, and boys and girls even around you who are going to be reading regularly, maybe again, not every day, but regularly uh, to encourage you. What did you read this week? What was encouraging to you in what you read this week? What is the Lord teaching you through the things that you're reading, that we're reading together as a church in his word? So this is going to be, uh, we're going to continue to push this. Even this morning, um, Damon read from, uh, from uh, Psalm 119. That's tomorrow's reading. And John 1, 1 through 5, that's uh, that's Tuesday, or Tuesday's reading. So we're going to incorporate that into congregational worship as well so that you're um, internalizing some of the, the Bible reading that you're doing throughout the week um, and, and on, as a congregation together on, on Sunday mornings. So would you please pick one of these up, consider doing it, just put it in your Bible, keep, keep it there, and read as often as you're able. Hopefully many of us in 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 Buffalo City Church, we can we can make it all the way through the Bible in a year. That would be wonderful. And I've said many times that if we together as a church commit to being in God's Word together regularly throughout the week, we will see transformation as a congregation. God will use that to make you and to form you more into the image of Christ. It doesn't go the other way. It's not how it works. When we're ingesting God's word together regularly, we become more like, like Christ, not less like him. So pick one of these up and, and look for some more details in the weekly email and then as well as a dedicated email about this as well. Okay, so you've turned to, to, to uh, 1 Thessalonians in your Bible. If you have one of the hardcover black Bibles that was on the back table, you're going to find it on page 1172. 
Again, I'm going to read all of chapter 1 for us this morning so that uh, we have the full context of what Paul is saying when he gets to verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church in Thessalonica, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Our lives are full of directions. Uh, If you buy a piece of furniture, um, probably not a really nice piece of furniture, but one like Ikea or the discount Menards furniture, you're gonna, uh, it's going to come with a piece of paper, the directions about some assembly that's probably required, whether it's putting the feet on a couch or, or assembling an entire uh, side table. You hop in your car, you pull up Maps app to drive somewhere you've never, you've never been before. You tell the contractor, we want the, house, we want the windows on the, on the north side of the house replaced, not the south side. You've given him, him directions. The, Paul recognizes that the Thessalonians had a directional change in their lives. And anytime anyone comes to Christ, they have a directional change in, in their lives. Last week, I mentioned briefly, it was sort of an off-the-cuff kind of remark, but it's one that, that bears uh, thinking about a little bit more. I mentioned that we need to, as committed and dedicated Bible readers, we need to uh, take note of prepositions, especially considering a genre of literature like this one. This is a letter written by Paul to a specific church, and when the New Testament authors are writing letters, they're regularly using prepositions. Now, if you're not a grammar person like like I am, that's great. I'm glad um, we we celebrate the diversity of not being grammar people. Um, but prepositions are those little words in your Bible, or even, and I've said a thousand of them already this morning, uh, that express relationship, that express relationship between two uh, two ideas or two nouns. If you're, uh, so an example of those little words are like above or across or under or against or among or before or behind or, you get the idea. I don't need to read an entire list. Expressing relationship. Sometimes they're spatial, like uh, like the, um, the dog ran behind the cat. Okay, where was the cat in relation to the dog? Well, the cat was in front of the dog because the dog ran behind the cat, behind being the preposition. And sometimes they can refer to time. The dog arrived before the cat, before being expressed. Like, when did the dog arrive? He arrived before the cat. If you'd like a formal definition, a preposition is a word or group of words used before a noun, pronoun, or noun phrase to show direction, time, place, location, spatial relationships, or to introduce an object. Why does this matter? <laughs> You're like, okay, in, okay, we're done. We're done with the grammar lesson. Why does this matter? Maybe you're thinking, why should I care? Uh, again, to be committed New Testament readers, we need to take note of these prepositions and the relationship that certain ideas and concepts have to each other. 
ideas, concepts, the relationships that they have to each other. The Apostle Paul is fond of prepositions. And if you're reading just even your English Bible, you're going to find that the Apostle Paul has all of these run-on sentences. They just go on forever. Sentence. Like, you're like, where was the last period? I have no idea. Just over and over and over again. And the reason he can do that is because of prepositions. He's explaining how the relationship exists between certain theological and biblical concepts. So, if we want to be committed Bible readers, which we do, um, this is an indication we want to be committed Bible readers, then we want to take note, especially in New Testament letters, of the prepositions. This passage this morning gives us two incredibly important prepositions. Two incredibly important prepositions, and both indicate direction, which is why I started out by talking about how much direction our lives have. North windows, not south windows. Turn left, not right. Assemble screw A into leg B. Lots of directions. The two prepositions in these two verses that matter most to us and represent the top level understanding that we need to have are to and from. So I hope you have your Bible still open in front of you. And if you never opened it, open it up now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if you like to mark your Bible, I'm not particularly fond of marking my Bible, but if you like to do that, then I would encourage you to look at the phrase to underline to God from idols. To God from idols. Because there we find those two prepositions that really matter. The Thessalonians' directional change was to God from idols. They turned from something to something. This is the direction that they are no longer moving, the direction that they are now moving. And the directional prepositions in this passage represent the two key ideas that we need to have in our mind as we study these two verses together this morning. So these two ideas will guide our time together. The first is simply this. The Thessalonians turned from idols, and the second being the Thessalonians turned to God. From idols to God, or in Paul's order, to God from idols. But we're going to take from idols first. So the Thessalonians turned from idols That's the first idea that we want to explore together. So when Paul writes that the Thessalonians turned from idols, he's noting the direction that they, again, were previously headed. Now, okay, so Paul writes this letter to a church in a place called Thessalonica, and we mentioned this a few times already, but the church was embedded in something called the imperial cult. And this is where uh, what the new, got the new tr- Christians in trouble right away. If you go back and read Acts chapter 17, you'll find that the new Christians got in trouble with city officials after the Jewish leadership gets jealous because of the people turning to Christ. And the imperial cult made it necessary for everyone in Roman provinces like Macedonia, where Thessalonica is, is located... Everyone must say verbally, Caesar is Lord. They must make a declaration that Caesar is Lord. But obviously the Thessalonian Christians started saying something very different upon coming to Christ. Earlier in chapter 1, when we read that, that the Holy Spirit came to them in power and they received the, word, the, the, the gospel not in word only, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, their lives were transformed and then they realized that they could no longer consent to the imperial cult and say Caesar is Lord because in fact, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so within Thessalonica, within this city, in this Roman province, 
there were Gentiles or non-Jewish people. There were Gentiles who would claim Caesar as Lord. And then also, that kind of go along with this culturally, they would worship the Roman pantheon of gods, which is just a bunch of gods. You probably know them by their Greek names like Zeus, but in the Roman version would be Jupiter. So they claim Caesar is Lord, and then they're worshiping in some way, shape, or form the, uh, the Roman pantheon of gods. And the majority of the Thessalonian congregation, we're told, is Gentile. So they would fall into these categories. They would be those who would readily, without any hesitation, declare Caesar is Lord, and then worship someone like Zeus or, or Jupiter. So... Uh, we're told in Acts chapter 17, verse 4, and some of the Jews were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a great many devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And so we see there that the, that the congregation of the church in Thessalonica is made up of some Jews, but it's the majority was made up of Gentiles who were embedded in the imperial cult. And the, so the idolatry that Paul is writing about in chapter 1, verse 9, is the claim that Caesar is Lord and then the worship of these, these Roman gods. And so Paul's word here brings us back to the Ten Commandments. It brings us all the way back to the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And it, you'll remember, way back in February, John preached on the First Commandment. And uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 in particular. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And when John preached that in that sermon, he stated that the meaning of the first commandment is the Lord is the only God and he is our God. The Lord is the only God and he is our God. Therefore, for the Christians in Thessalonica, Caesar cannot be Lord if Jesus is Lord. And the Roman pantheon of gods cannot be worshipped alongside the true and living God. The relationship that God has with his people is exclusive. The relationship that God has with his people is exclusive. He is a jealous God. He is a God who demands all of our worship, not just part of it spread out over many different things or many different gods, but he is the only God and he is our God. How were both the Jewish and Gentile Christians counted among God's people. Because remember that Deuteronomy is written to uh, the, the, the Jewish people. But by receiving the gospel message, preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, resulting in new life in Christ, the Thessalonian congregation made up even of primarily Gentile, non-Jewish people, could be counted among God's people, those to whom the first commandment was given, you shall have no other gods before me. The Thessalonians digest this quickly. Again, it gets them in trouble, but they realize very quickly that you can, they could not both say, Caesar is Lord and Jesus is Lord. They could not both worship Zeus and God. Having anything in the place of God in any form is idolatry. And this applies to everyone. It doesn't just apply to, to people who profess Christ. It applies to ev everyone. Everyone who puts anything in the place, everyone on planet earth who puts anything in the place and worships it in the place of the one true and living God is an idolater. Gentiles who worshiped Jupiter and Caesar were idolaters. In our day, Muslims 
and Buddhists and secularists and pluralists are all idolaters. They have put other things in the place of God and worshipped them in the way that only God can be worshipped. Friends, idolatry is always surging through our culture. It's always surging through our culture. And you can usually find it in the sectors of society labels as cool or dedicates a lot of time and energy to. They're usually things that are good, like that can be objectively stated as good, but are misplaced and put in other in a category that they do not belong. Society oftentimes labels things as cool and then dedicates all of its time and energy and money to try and convince you that it is cool, that you would say that it's cool as well. NFL games and Taylor Swift concerts and prestige television and eco-friendly packaging in your, that your Amazon order comes in. Our society uses coolness as a way to sell you on idolatry. But the most effective way that our culture sells you on idolatry is the current cultural climate of self. We're constantly being told to love self, to take care of self, to look out for self. And when we learn that the Thessalonian Christians turned from idols, we learn that these idols then lost their appeal. Even the appeal of self as a primary idol loses its appeal because later in the letter, Paul is going to tell them that things about brotherly love, he doesn't even need to write, them, write to them about because they're doing so well, pouring one another's love, pouring love for one another with regularity. And he even mentions it earlier in chapter one, where he says that he remembers before his God and Father, before the face of God, he remembers works of faith and labors of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And others-oriented perspective that the Thessalonians had not thinking, how can I get the most out of this for myself? But how is the transformative work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel in my life orient me now, not to myself, but to others around me? What the Thessalonians realized they needed more than anything could not be given them through the cultural idols. They realized that they needed to be free from sin and the death that comes on its heels as a result of that sin. They needed to be free from those things in order that they might love one another. Caesar was a man. The pantheon of God, Roman gods was made up by man and therefore powerless. None of these idols could deal with sin and death. And so Paul says, part of the great witness that they have to the work of God in their lives is that they turn from these idols. The question is, what did they turn to? Well, again, the prepositions help us. From idols to God. And that's the second idea then this morning. The Thessalonians turned to God. Again, redirection. Redirection. From idols to God. Friends, these two prepositions, from idols to God, give us our understanding of our term repentance. To repent is to turn from idols to God. Repentance isn't just turning from sin or idolatry, because if you're turning, there are 359 alternative degrees that you could turn. If you're headed this direction and you had this direction, you're going a different way, but is it the right one? Is it 
the right one. All are wrong. All directions are wrong, but one. All other directions that aren't to God are, in fact, idolatry. And repentance is turning from idolatry specifically to God. When we say the word idolatry, we are referring to all sin. All sin is, at its core, idolatry, which is why it's the first of the Ten Commandments. When you trust something other than the living and true God to give you life, you've sinned by making it an idol. How many times do you hear when you watch a sporting event or some, some even just a, 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 anyone in our culture talking, they, they're telling you about how you can have life. They say things like, I've, nev- I've did this thing for the first time in my life and I've never been so alive. Those, those statements are blatant and unmitigated idolatry. They're saying this thing, whatever it may be, this experience that I had, this supplement that I took, this thought or ideology that I began uh, uh, thinking about or subscribing to, has given me life in a way that nothing else could. Do you hear the idolatry in those statements? I've never been so alive. But there's only one thing that can give you life and give you everlasting life, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. The only way to have life is to come to Christ and to trust in Christ and to submit your life to Christ and to to stop saying, this thing is Lord, and say, Jesus is Lord. Stop saying, Caesar is Lord. And to say, Jesus is Lord. Again, our society says that self is God, effectively making self an idol. But no amount of self-love, no amount of self-care, no amount of self-improvement can give you life. I can't deal with the problem of sin and death that it leads to. The only thing that can give you life, the only person that can give you life is Jesus Christ. There is no other thing on earth that has ever existed or will ever exist that can give you life except for the person of Jesus Christ. He says it. He makes it exclusive. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say, I am one of the ways and one of the truths and one of the lives. And I think most people in this room would agree mentally. We would agree mentally that That, yeah, of course, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But friends, our theology and what we believe and the doctrines that we say we ascribe to don't come out just from our mouths. In fact, sometimes it's the worst way to tell about what someone actually believes. Our theology and our doctrine comes through our fingertips. It comes through our feet, where we walk, what our eyes are on, what we touch, and what kind of things we do to serve. If our fingertips are only being used to serve self and to our interests, then we have stated very clearly that we believe that Jesus is not the exclusive way to have life. That we believe that we can manufacture that life somehow ourselves. And so you may have said, I've just turned from sin. I don't like the way that I've been. I don't like the way that the things that I've done in my past, and I want to turn over a new leaf, and I want to go a different direction with my life. But again, there are 358 other alternative directions that you can go. There's one that you're going currently. You know that you can't stand that path, and there's one that leads to God, and that's Jesus Christ. The 358 other ones is a fool's errand to turn that direction. 
The Thessalonians turned to God, and this is their great witness amongst the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, a Roman province with Thessalonica in it, and Achaia just south of it, where Corinth was located. The Thessalonians turned from their sin, and then Paul says it's evident in two ways. He says that when they turn from their sin and turn to God, it's evident in two ways. Right at the end of verse 9, the first way that it was evident that they turned from idols to God is to serve, that they served the living and true God. Paul had already made this clear again back in verse 3. Their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. This is service to the body of Christ. All of these are the Thessalonians' service to God. And the second way that Paul sees the evidence that the Thessalonians turn to God from idols is in their verse 10. Patient and hopeful waiting for the return of Christ. He says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he delivered, or from whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul knows certain, and he speaks assuredly about the Thessalonians. He's not like, I think this is probably true about you. No, he says, I know it is true of you. And I want to encourage you because this is true of you. You serve the living God, the true and living God, by serving one another, by loving one another, by your faith and by your hope. And your hope is such that you are patiently enduring in the affliction that has come your way because of the word of God. You hope patiently for the return of Christ, knowing that when he comes back, he will make all things new. He will make all things right. And whatever you've suffered here in this life will be, in fact, made right. This moves us into some concluding thoughts. And kind of before we get there, sort of as like a pre-conclusion, I want you to think I want you to think about the word repentance. And if you've been in around church, you've probably heard this word many times. If you're here at Buffalo City Church, you've heard, of the, you've heard the word repentance many times. And again, the definition is very simple. It's turning from, God, or from idols to God. If we're going to give a very simple definition of repentance, it's turning from idols to God. The reality, though, is that this term has sort of fallen out of a lot of Christian teaching because of what it implies. It implies that you're, you, you were headed in the wrong direction. It implies that you are sinful. And the marketing minds behind churches that think that sin is a sort of a tough pill for us to swallow, I don't want to believe that I'm actually all that bad. Sure, I make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. Like that kind of idea. But to say, no, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Like the Bible is clear that you were. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And your, your orientation was never right. It was always towards sin. There is no one who's righteous. No, not one. And that sin has eaten you. And it was imputed to you from your father, Adam. And, it was, and you were born into it. And then you choose it actively. Every moment of every day, just thinking exclusively about yourself and about, about how you can get things out of people and places. And sin and the radical nature of it and how God is holy and how he is set apart and how sin has no no ability to approach God those things anything that implies sinfulness and its existence like repentance are often neatly snipped from sermons and from Bible studies and from anything church-related. And a lot of 
Christian teaching has morphed into affirming that we're all kind of on the right path and you just need Jesus, sprinkle a little Jesus on there to help you get through the tough days and to get you where you want to go. You can be a little more successful on the way with a little bit of Jesus. And so, for many Christians, repentance has become a negative term. It's become something that is seen as a negative thing. Because Christians begin to believe, and maybe this is true of some of you in this room, repentance is what you have to do when you get caught. When you get caught sinning, when you are snap at your family, when you cut a corner at work and someone calls you out on it, ugh. That repentance is somehow the punishment. But friends, you'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to read these two verses this morning. Verses 9 and 10 in Thessalonians chapter 1 and think of this as a negative thing. Turning from dead, impotent idols to the living and true God. <laughs> That, how could that be interpreted as anything but a gift? Sin is a sickness, and sin never goes out without a feverish fight. So inside of you, you're going to begin thinking like, oh, repentance, I'm not really into that, because that requires me to admit that I am somehow sinful, but that somehow I'm on the wrong path. And the things that I'm doing are... are according to the world, are actually kind of cool. And the direction that I'm going seems fine to me. I haven't really heard anybody yet. Sin wants you to think it's cool. And that turning from it is, in fact, lame. And that turning to God in repentance sounds like a boring thing to do. And because we live in a world that is in fact in love with its sin and enslaved to sin, turning away from it is seen as foolishness. Worshiping anything and everything other than the one true and living God is worshiping a dead idol. Let me say that again. Worshiping anything and everything other than the one true and living God is worshiping a dead idol. Those dead idols have no power to save and they have no power to satisfy. And as Christians, we need to be careful not to welcome in acceptable forms of idolatry. We do this all of the time as well. Within Christian circles, sometimes certain idolatry is tolerated. And this happens when we improperly prioritize good gifts given to us by God. Everything is given to us from God for our enjoyment. Everything is given. I'm not saying that we are, are thinking like, oh, well, I can't. I need to go stand in the corner and just wear drab clothing like a potato sack and just stare at the wall and watch the paint dry. No, everything is given. The, the meal that you eat this afternoon for lunch is going to be a good gift from God. But you should not prioritize it and worship it, that steak that you're going to slap on the grill, that you should not prioritize that above God and worship it instead of God. So what we do is we, but we do is we say, well, these things are good because God declares that they're good. And then we slip into idolatry. We begin to worship those things. We elevated created things above the creator. That's idolatry. We elevate the gift above the giver. That's idolatry. For example, let me give you an example. I love my family. I love my wife, and I love my six children. I love all of them, and I love them a lot, and I dedicate a lot of time and energy to my family, and family is a good gift from God. Over and over and over and over again in Scripture, we're told that the nuclear family is a good gift from God, but sometimes I'm tempted, you're tempted, the Christian subculture is tempted to elevate family to a place of idolatry. Sometimes it's, we're tempted to elevate it to a place where we worship it above God. But remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14. 
He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What, what is Jesus saying there? What, what are you saying, Jesus? He's not saying that disciples should abandon their families and divorce their wives and drop their kids off on the side of the road and drive away. That would run contrary to many other commands of Scripture. Rather, Jesus is speaking out against those who would use their families as an excuse not to follow him. The only way to genuinely serve your family, whether you're a father or a mother, whether you're a son or a daughter, the only genuine way to serve your family is to, is to orient your life towards God and worship him. Because if they take the place of God and you worship them, you will be gravely disappointed by looking for life in a place that cannot offer it to you. You will be looking for satisfaction in a place that cannot offer it to you. You will put pressure on your wife. You will put pressure on your husband. You will put pressure on your kids to be God. And none of them are. They're not your God. And you're not your God either. Jesus addressed a disciple in Matthew 8, 21 and 22. Same idea. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus is saying, not that burying people is bad. This isn't a commentary on funerals. This is a commentary on people who use their family as an excuse not to follow him. If you do that, you've made your family an idol. The reality is that we think that's all fine and well, but have you ever used your family as an excuse not to serve brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church or just simply to attend congregational worship? Your kids get sick. I get that. You get sick. We all get sick. Don't show up and sneeze on us. But what I am saying is this mentality that we're really busy because of youth sports or because of all these activities we've got going on or because of X, Y, and Z, and I really don't think we can be in congregational worship this month and keep all the balls that we're juggling in the air. And all of a sudden, you're in the area where you're right on that line. You're towing the line where you might be guilty of idolatry. These things are keeping you from the worship of God in the midst of the congregation, a clear command that's given to you in Scripture. Friends, again, sometimes we take good things and we make them idols. We take good gifts that God has given us and worship them over and above the one who gave them to us. Idolatry is anything that is worshipped in the place of God. And if you want to know what those things might be in your own life, consider what you give your best time and energy to. It's a simple question to ask. What do I give my best time and energy to? Ask the Holy Spirit to bring that to mind. The things that your heart is drawn to that oftentimes take the place of worshiping him. And when the Holy Spirit brings those things to mind, the power of the Holy Spirit turn from those things to serve the living and true God. Like the Thessalonians, turn to God from idols. Three basic implications from this text. We'll go relatively quickly through these. When the gospel comes to us, like it did to the Thessalonians in the power of the Holy Spirit, it changes our direction. Prior to Christ, you were headed the wrong direction. In Christ, you're headed the right direction. The world says it was the cool way. The world said it would make you happy. The world said it would offer you true life. But all of those claims were lies. Your life was pointed towards idols. But in Christ, your direction was altered. But the 360 degrees that you could go, 358 again of them were wrong. One is right. The one is the current one you're going. But directional change, again, requires humility. It requires that you, an, an understanding that you can't continue to believe that you were headed the right direction before Christ and then come to Christ. This is the reason, again, the world tells you that turning to Christ is a bad idea. Because you are giving up control. 
Because you're admitting you didn't know the correct direction. I didn't know the way to go. Well, that sounds like you're kind of dumb. That's what the world will say. The world will say, just you're driving the right road. Just let Jesus take the wheel for a minute while you catch a nap and get your strength back. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 359 degrees of direction lead to destruction. One degree leads to life. Turn from idols to God. That's the call. Second implication. True repentance leads to service rendered to God. So, Paul says the way that he knows that they've turned from idols to God is because they serve the living and true God. Now, I think that's there's a bit of a misunderstanding here about what service to God looks like. And this is where we get back into one of those key themes for the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. If we think back to the first couple of weeks we were here in chapter 1, one of the key themes that we want to explore today and each day that we're in this book is everyday faithfulness. Service to God is rendered, living according to his word faithfully, no matter where you find yourself. Service to God is not a one-time action. Service to God is a life of faithful living. The, the big things in the big things, yes, but just as importantly in the little things, in the small day-to-day actions and activities, helping mom with the dishes, putting data into a spreadsheet, changing a diaper. The local church is the clearest place that Scripture tells us service to God is rendered. Don't, don't miss this. Service to God is rendered, Scripture tells us most clearly in the local church. Because the church, not because the church is a hub for Christian events where we can volunteer and put on a t-shirt. But because the people here are your brothers and sisters in Christ and you are commanded to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. We have unique opportunities to faithfully serve others by loving those within the local church. Jesus tells his disciples, by this you will know that you are my, or the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And again, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. This is service to God, loving brothers and sisters in Christ. If you need some structure for that idea, when we call for volunteers to serve in the infant toddler room, it's not a call for you to fill a vacant spot on a calendar. It's a call for you to love a worn out mother who simply wants to hear the sermon once a month and to sing a few of the songs on a Sunday. When we call for volunteers to help with meals and a Sunday evening service, it's not just a call to make food or to set out paper products or put tablecloths on tables. It's an opportunity to love your church family by making space for them to sit around a table and build meaningful relationships for the sake of encouragement and gratitude in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question we must ask ourselves then is when the call to love brothers and sisters in Christ in the form of service within the local church, loving one another comes, am I usually unavailable or unwilling? If the answer is yes, then turn from idols to God. Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Third implication, true repentance leads to patient hope. Hope for the future is directional. If your life is aimed at anything other than, than the true and living God, you will have uncertainty in this life. I remember when I was a kid, my dad would point out something on the horizon to me. He'd say, look over there, there's a deer. And I would, and I would look this way. And he'd say, no, look where I'm pointing. And I'd keep looking that way. And he'd be like, no, look at my hand and look where I'm pointing. And then I'd look at his hand and look where he was pointing. And then I'd see the deer. Amazingly. 
Our eyes must be continually on God's word if we are to see the true direction. You're going to read it tomorrow in the Bible reading plan, Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a life to my path. The path quickly becomes hidden when the light is far away. But when we keep the light close, we see the way to go. True repentance leads to a patient hope because we can see Christ set before us. If you turn the wrong way, if you're walking in darkness, you won't see what's coming. You will begin to fret about the future rather than be confident and assured about it. And for those who trust Christ, the patient hope of the resurrection of Christ is seen in Christ. If our eyes are aimed towards Jesus, who who was raised from the dead, we have certainty that we will be raised with him. A friend of mine this summer said, To me, there's nothing a good resurrection can't fix. That's true for everything in your life. There's nothing a good resurrection can't fix. Or the way that Paul writes about it, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Patient hope. Patiently waiting and hoping in the face of suffering. You may suffer today and you may wonder what tomorrow brings, but you can be assured that there is nothing that a good resurrection can't fix. There's no affliction that is not, that is not, there is no affliction that is not preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you're turned towards idols, you will not see the hope that comes in Christ. If you're turned towards God, patient hope and anticipation of the return of Christ will be yours. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity in which it brings us to this understanding of repentance. God, for those who are in this room this morning who may have not trusted Christ, God, would you, in even these moments, through the power of your Holy Spirit, bring them to turn from idols to you. God, we confess together that you are the true and living God, that there are no other gods. There, are nothing, there is nothing in this world that can offer us life and satisfaction, God, and so we worship you. God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.